Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be back. And this week we have as our guest, someone who's been with us a number of times before, Brad Crone. I don't know just how many times he has been on this program, but he's been here a long time. And of course, Brad is a recovering uh, star of WPTF. At one time, he was uh, 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 the afternoon news editor for WPTF. And then he's uh, then he lost his senses and got into public relations work and <laughs> Political work and cease to be a broadcaster. But uh, I think your heart's still there, uh, Brad. It is. It truly is. It was the best job I ever had. When I retire, I'm coming back to work for you. Well, you know, and, and of course, we're not, now we've got that midnight to six shift open for you. So I think this. <laughs> uh, and of course, it, he's also been a newspaper publisher at the Thomasville Times. And then he had also the Clayton Star and some other newspaper interests. But he, since that time, has become a Raleigh-based consulting firm specializing in advising people in public affairs, public relations, and grassroots campaigns for trade associations, advocacy groups, and, of course, political candidates. And uh, uh, along the way, he served as a special assistant to the North Carolina Commissioner of Agriculture, Jim Graham, which was also a trip, I'm sure. And... Uh, and then he was a deputy press secretary to launch Farkoff when he ran for his 84 gubernatorial campaign. So I tell you all that stuff to point out that Brad has lots and lots of varied experience. And of course, he's also a regular panelist on NC Spin, the Tom Campbell television program. Well, Brad, we haven't talked, I don't believe, since COVID-19 has dominated the news and of course we have other uh pressing uh concerns right now also as we've had a week of protest um and uh, so we've got two things going on right now that will affect the elections in a big way and also are crying for solutions and so we want to talk about those so let, let's let's deal with the covid19 issues first and reopening north carolina is uh of major concern because uh, we have a lot of people who are out of work, uh, need to be returned to their jobs. And of course we have uh, some economic damage that has been done to a number of establishments that uh, they're going to have to work through. We have a number of businesses that are not going to reopen. So Brad, what's your overall view right now on where we stand with the reopening of North Carolina? Well, Don, I think the governor and Dr. Mandy Cohen at the Department of Health and Human Services uh, have done a very good job so far. Um, have they sort of lost control of the initiative? I would say yes, simply because uh, more and more people are saying, I hear you, but I also see my checking account balance and I've got to get back to work. And so, as we move from phase one to phase two, you've seen increased pressure, increased tension uh, between the business community, small business owners, and the governor, as well as with the state legislature and the governor. From the outset, I think Governor Cooper did a great job of uh, setting the tone and setting the guidelines uh, on how we deal with the pandemic here in the state. I think uh, Dr. Dr. Cohen took a scientific and database-driven approach to dealing with this. 
They were very concerned about an overrun of our healthcare delivery system. And I think they have been prudent in the process of getting the state reopening. But I also see the critical need, as you said, on the economic front, on so many various sectors of our economy, in particular, our hospitality, our travel and tourism, and our restaurant industries have just been devastated by this. Our gym business, our bars, they are still not allowed to be open. There's uh, civil uh, litigation ongoing right now between some of the bar owners and the gym owners with the governor. I hope that they could reach some type of compromise to be able to get it back open. I understand the interest of the governor on making sure that we social distance, that we practice safe and healthy guidelines for interaction with people in groups of more than 10, that we keep our hands washed. I think you have to be worried about some of the statistics that we've seen just this week, where we have nearly doubled the amount of testing on COVID-19, and we've seen an increase in the percentage of overall cases. Last week, our percent, statewide percentage of infection was right at 7% of all people who had been tested. This week, it's averaging almost 12%. Now, the good news that we've seen this week is the fact that hospital hospitalizations and overnight stays for COVID-19 have actually reduced this week in the state, and that is good news. I sincerely hope that we get a pause button with COVID-19 for the summer months at least, that we allow our research institutions like Carolina and Duke, uh, who are doing yeoman's work right now, working with the National Institute of Health and other pharmaceutical and biotech and bioscience industries, trying to find uh, additional therapeutics and then looking at the vaccines. So we have done a good job. I think there's a lot to be proud of. I think there's a lot to be concerned about as well. One of the things I needed to point out is that uh, because I, I got some criticism last week for uh, uh, allowing uh, my guest last week to express his views and opinions. Uh, uh, let me point out that uh, Brad Crone is a Republican and usually works with Republican <laughs> candidates. And so, uh, so when you, well, I, I, I'm actually unaffiliated. Well, uh, at, at one time you were a Republican. I was a Democrat. And then I changed over to unaffiliated. Oh, so okay. now but most I of work. The, uh, but most of your uh, uh, clients are, uh, when they're candidates, are Republican. I have worked with both Democrats and Republicans. Okay. Well, I, you're, you're more so equal than I thought. I'm, I, I'm a man in the middle. Okay. Well, uh, and I suspect you're sort of where a large majority of North Carolinians are and, and, uh, uh, so that you probably represent the views and opinions of a lot of people. But I, I did want to point out that one of the things we do in this program is we always allow our guests to express their opinions and we don't try to lead them one way or the other. If it seems like I am, I apologize for that because that's not my, my function. The uh, economic impact uh, of COVID-19 of course has been further uh, impacted, I guess you might say by the, uh, disturbances and the peace demonstrate—not uh, peace demonstrations, but the uh, protests that we've had this week. Uh, this is not helping the economy. Uh, it may be something that uh, uh, is uh, peaceful demonstrations may be something that's necessary, and 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 of course is a human right of our citizens to perform. But it's not helping the economy. And when we 
have a destruction of public property and uh, private property. That doesn't yeah, no, that's very true. And I, I think the health officials are very concerned about the spread of COVID-19 because when you watch the television video, you see so many of the protesters not wearing masks, not practicing social distancing. And so there's really a uh, concern from the health community. There was a national story out of Oklahoma on Thursday of this week uh, about an Oklahoma University football player who had been protesting earlier in the week. He was asymptomatic and had uh, presented on Wednesday at his local health clinic with symptoms of COVID-19, got tested, test came back positive. So the health department in Oklahoma City was doing some uh, contract, contact tracing in that situation. And I think you're going to see more and more cases of that. Um, you know, the, the incidents where you had uh, drag races in Alamance County and Stanley County over the last two weeks has got to be very alarming to our state health officials seeing um, people together in that close proximity. But with that said, Don, I think you've got to realize we can't treat everybody like uh, teenagers or children. You have to give them the information, let them assume the information, assimilate it, and understand what the risks are. And if they're willing to take that risk, then we are a free country. And uh, what I have seen is uh, the citizens in North Carolina have been able to uh, take that information and say, I'm willing to take the risk to open up my business or to re-engage in the events and, and daily affairs that I undertake on uh, a regular basis. And I think they're rip-roaring and ready to go uh, when it comes to getting back to some type of regular order. Uh, the economic damage that we face here in the state's just going to be staggering. And, you know, the president has talked about having a V recovery. I don't think we'll have a V recovery. Uh, I think we're looking more like a U recovery or a W recovery possibly in the event we get a second wave and the second wave is just as bad or worse than the, the outbreak of the pandemic, then that could be economically devastating as well the hospital and the healthcare delivery system across the state has to be prepared for that. The public health officials right now, Don, are working on getting therapeutics into the hospitals. They have been distributing Redemsevere, uh, which is a drug that was developed by Gilead uh, Pharmaceuticals during the Ebola outbreak in Africa four years ago. So that uh, injectable medicine is being delivered to hospitals all our hospitals across the state is one of the therapeutics to help people who um, who get COVID-19 pneumonia and um, are facing having to go on a ventilator or some type of life support system. So, you know, we're not, I think it's fair to say, and, and the public health officials and the Secretary of Health and Human Services have said, um, we're not out of the woods and, and we've still got to take COVID-19 serious. All this while we're watching uh, a national crisis when it comes to social justice and racial justice and racial harmony in our state. Our guest is Brad Hood. <laughs> uh, Brad Hood. <laughs> Brad Crone. I know a Brad Hood, and uh, you're not him. You're Brad Crone, uh, uh, president of Campaign Connections, and uh, we will be back with more. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right after these messages. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Brad Crone, president of Campaign Connections here on Carolina Newsmakers. And uh, as we have talked about in our first segment, uh, we had a number of uh, demonstrations this week all across North Carolina, all across the country for that matter. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me is the protesters seem to be feeling that uh, Governor Cooper is not responding, and uh, uh, so there was a march on the on the uh, mansion. And uh, my question is, what did you think of Governor Cooper's response or lack of response to that uh, protest? Well, I don't think the assumption is fair to say that Governor Cooper has not been an ally uh, for racial justice and uh, social equality. Uh, those have been critical platforms for the governor since his career started off in the state house and in the state senate. As our attorney general, you remember the Duke lacrosse case. Um, he has taken hard stands when he needed to. Uh, he has been decisive and uh, I believe a leader when it comes to um, advancement for minority concerns. Uh, so I think that's been um, somewhat unfair to say that the governor has been slow to react. I think the, that that is more frustration from those who are protesting, and not necessarily understanding the political uh, leadership that, that the governor has provided over the last 30 years. What I hear out of the protesters, Don, more so than anything is a call for a national standard when it comes to policing. We need to look in the state of North Carolina, we need to look at the county level and the local level of every single law enforcement agency in North Carolina and uh, across the nation should have an open public review of their use of force policies and guidelines. I think that would be a real big step in the right direction of having um, public input, public debate, and then allowing our leaders to work with our sheriffs and our police chiefs across the state and across the country 
to really set a level of how we're going to police in this country. Then I think we need to have a, a local, state, national discussion on how law enforcement uses force, what type of training procedures are in place when it comes to the use of force. Another one is uh, absolutely we need to outlaw the knee-on-the-neck procedure for submission of people who are being placed under arrest. We need to look at, at implementing de-escalation training for every single law enforcement, uh, sworn law enforcement officer in the state as well as the nation. And then how, do we, how does de-escalation work into anger management? And, you know, we've seen the protesters really work on, in some of the video to provoke the officers to get up in their face. And there, many of them, rightfully so, have been respectful and have been diligent not to engage with the protesters. So I think anger management uh, training would be something uh, that would be useful in the law enforcement community too. And then revamping our community policing standards. Um, rather than, than setting up you know, community watches, I think we need to look at how we get officers and law enforcement to work within the community when it comes to law enforcement actions on drug enforcement, on domestic policy cases, on servicing subpoenas and warrants. So we've got to have that discussion and it can't be a one-way discussion. It's got to be a two-way engagement process coming up from the grassroots, grass tops, local community, activists and influencers. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, you touched on court system reform also because there's, uh, uh, th that's another thing that I think the protesters are concerned about. That's uh, if there is an arrest, is there equal justice or equal uh, opportunity for uh, the case when it's tried in the court system? So that's another uh, area that we need to review, not, uh, uh, not uh, just in North Carolina, but across the country. Uh, generally speaking, you know, I think almost everybody agrees that we've made an awful lot of progress through the years, but uh, it has come slow. And so consequently, the frustration level, that's a word you've used several times. Uh, that's what I think is uh, sort of boiling over now is frustration. It doesn't happen quick enough to suit everybody. The other problem we have is the frustration of the quarantine that we have been under. And you put those two together and they sort of mix and so you've got Absolutely. people who are <clears throat> And it's, it's a volatile situation where you have people uh, of color who feel like that their voice is not heard. You have a volatile situation where you have people of color who say that the justice system does not work for them, whether it's from the law enforcement side on the street or whether it's from the representation of legal counsel in the courtroom and the outcome that results in active prison sentences. And uh, it's volatile um, when you've got people cooped up because of COVID-19 and they're literally running out of money because they're not able to get out and work. And the $1,200 that has come and gone um, has helped them a little bit, but they need help literally right now. Um, does, does it advance the cause though when when a peaceful protest uh commemorating george floyd's uh tragic death
turns into a criminal rampage. And what we can't do, uh, I don't think you can allow a handful of extremists to become uh, criminals by looting and and, uh, torching private property and the destruction of personal property and actual physical attacks on law enforcement officers. Uh, This absolutely tarnishes the impact of peaceful protest. I I praise uh, Mayor Baldwin in Raleigh and Mayor Bylaws in Charlotte for taking steps to put in curfews, which have, I think, dissipated some of the illegal activity that we saw uh, earlier in the weekend. Well, you know, uh, when you get a, you know, it's when you have as many police officers as we have across the country and people involved in law enforcement, uh, you're going to have some bad apples. And one of the things we're going to have to learn to do is there's got to be some recognition early on that, uh, you have some bad apples because clearly the majority of all law enforcement people uh, are, I'm sure are embarrassed by some of these actions and, and don't condone it and don't practice it. So uh, it's, you know, it's uh, this, this is a touchy I, situation. Yeah. I think a lot of it starts too, Don with leadership at the top. And, and for the last three years, we've had a very divisive uh, president. Uh, we've had a president who has encouraged violent acts on his social media platforms. We've had a president who called the governors this week weak. We had a president this week who used active duty military to clear out Lafayette Park so he could do- go do a photo op. We had the former Secretary of Defense actually go after him in an article in the Atlantic Uh, And then Senator Lisa Murkowski from the state of Alaska uh, came in and agreed with Secretary of Defense Mathis, Jim Mathis. And I think we need a voice of calm. We need a voice of reason. We need leadership at the national level who can see the pain and suffering that many of our citizens are facing and that we work that and that we work to um, engage those folks in a dialogue on how we can address the issues of uh, racial inequality and social justice. So um, have there been any polls in the last week or so about the support for the president? Is, Is he gaining or losing support? Well, I think the protests and the riots have actually galvanized political polar bases, both liberal and conservatives. The, the events that we witnessed I think have energized both your minority community and your conservative white Trump voters. And what you're seeing is a split again of further strengthening of each polar political base and that people left in the middle like me, your unaffiliated uh, independent voters and the law enforcement community have been stuck somewhat, uh, been caught in the middle. I think it's going to be extremely interesting to observe the polling data of the next three or four weeks to see if either of those bases gain any type of political advantage. As we go into the election cycle for 2020, I think we're looking at a turnout election. Um, I don't think you're you're going to have a high percentage of persuadable voters. I think the voters are going to be going into the election process knowing who they're going to support and standing up for it. Uh, 
So that makes the election at the national level in North Carolina and the state level in North Carolina really contingent upon your unaffiliated voter, which represents almost 30% of your total votes cast now in the wraparound counties in the Charlotte market. It's, it's Union County, Gaston County, Cabarrus, Iredale, Rowan, Lincoln, Catawba, and then Alamance and uh, Davidson County in the Greensboro, Winston, Salem, High Point television market. It's Johnston, Harnett, Lee, Franklin, and Gramble in the Raleigh-Durham, Fayetteville television market. So watching those voters and how they perform is going to be extremely interesting. At this point in time, I've not seen any polling data, either private or public polling, suggesting uh, any type of movement based off of the uh, Floyd incident, the uh, racial injustice protests that we've seen over the last uh, over the last week. It will be intriguing to see that data. Civitas put out a poll earlier this week that had uh, Trump up in the state three points. Um, the governor had actually dropped about seven points, and he still had a significant lead over the lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest, at 11 points. Uh, generic ballot votes still favored Republicans at the congressional level and at the state legislative level. So I don't know if we've seen or had enough time for uh, Democratic base voters to get traction or candidates to get traction as a result of the uh, George Floyd protest. Our guest is Brad Crone, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Brad Crone, who's president of Campaign Connections, a political strategist and uh, runs a Raleigh-based consulting firm specializing in public affairs and public relations. He's been a frequent guest on this program before, and he's a regular panelist on North Carolina Spin as well. Uh, Brad has uh, uh, been with uh, WPTF News a long time ago, and uh, since that time, he's branched out into numerous other uh, career activities. We've talked about all sorts of things so far, but uh, one of the things I'd like to get your opinion on, and we'll go over them race by race, and that is the effect so far of 
COVID-19. You touched on it briefly at the end of the last segment. And also uh, what you think may happen is a reaction to the week of protest that we've had in the various races. In North Carolina, we have uh, that, uh, I guess, the opposite of the blue moon period where we have all three races up. We have uh, a United States Senate race. We have a presidential race. And of course, every member of uh, Congress is up for, for election. So uh, let's, let's look at North Carolina first. Do you see uh, the situations uh, that we have had, and as we said, there's two of them, affecting how North Carolina might vote in the October, November period of time. We really don't have any public polling data or private polling data at this point in time to show that there's immediate impact following COVID-19 and the George Floyd protest. My uh, experience, 30 years of being in this business, would suggest that I think we're going to have very close races because, as I said in the last segment, I think we're looking at galvanization of our bases, uh, the polar bases of each party, your liberal Democrats and your conservative Republicans. And the, the tip, tipping point for North Carolina is going to be an affiliated voter. So we've seen uh, Civitas put out a poll last week that had Trump up three points. I believe when it's all said and done, it's going to be a 100,000 vote uh, difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I believe it's up for grabs. If uh, Trump is able to uh, garner support from your rural regions of the state in eastern and western North Carolina and actually improve performance, then uh, Trump has an advantage. On the other hand, the Democrats are looking at a 2008 model where you have significant African-American turnout between 225 to 23% of your total votes cast. The other big factor that's going to be the question mark for presidential, Senate, and the gubernatorial elections will be um, the impact of where your unaffiliated voters go. It's interesting, Don, that your independent voters in Charlotte and Raleigh are more liberal, while your unaffiliated independent voters, say, for example, in Gaston County, and in Johnston County are a little more moderate conservative. They are fiscal conservatives, somewhat moderate social, um, moderates on social issues. So there's a dichotomy even within that 28 and a half percent of your unaffiliated vote in the state of North Carolina. So that's what you really got to be watching. In the U.S. Senate race, that race is, is basically statistically tied. One poll will have Tillis up. Another poll will have Cunningham up. I think, again, that's going to be a nail-biter. I, I think we could have, in, in the state of North Carolina, uh, our top three major races going in well into Wednesday morning, maybe even into Wednesday afternoon uh, before any winners can be declared. The other impact that we're looking at is how many people are going to be voting by mail and voting early. Uh, there was some polling last week that showed that there's going to be a significant jump in people who are going to request absentee ballots in the state. And you know, last week, the legislature uh, passed bipartisan uh, a bipartisan bill in the state house between uh, Pricey Harrison, a Democrat, liberal Democrat out of Greensboro, and David Lewis, a conservative Republican out of Dunn, making significant changes, making it easier for people to access uh, early voting, making it easier for uh, voters to access absentee by mail. 
the ballots, and then also making sure that our precinct stations have the proper protective equipment and sanitizers, hand sanitizers and equipment to make sure the voting booths are clean, sanitary, and the highest health standards are um, watched and adhered to as we go through the election process. When I was going over the list of candidates, I failed to mention, of course, there's also a race for governor. So we have a presidential race, a gubernatorial race, and a Senate race, as well as all the congressmen in North Carolina are up. So it is a big election with lots of, uh, uh, and of course, we've also had some amount of redistricting, which will also uh, change some huge, things. Huge election. On, on the governor's case, the governor's seen a significant increase in his approval rating simply because of the amount of television time and radio time, broadcast time that he's had to deliver in dealing with the COVID-19 response all the way from March 13th up until present time. Uh, almost on a daily basis. The governor's been holding um, early news conferences around five o'clock and getting a lot of press time on every media outlet across the state. So he's seen an increase in his favorability. A couple other things to watch in the governor's race. Um, the governor's placed about four to five million dollars of television advertising in all the major television markets across the state. He's actually served another four million that I think they're going to be placing uh, their money in. So probably by the end of July, the governor will have placed about $9 million in television advertising and digital media advertising and broadcasting um, dollars of revenues across the state. His opponent, the Lieutenant Governor, Republican Dan Forrest, hasn't bought any television time at this point in time. He has a limited uh, amount of money of cash on hand. The governor has a significant financial advantage going into the remaining uh, three months, four months of the campaign, five months of the campaign, and that's going to be a significant advantage for Roy Cooper. But with that said, Don, it is a structural race, and the Republicans have structural advantage in the gubernatorial race in every television market in the state, with the exception of Raleigh-Durham-Fayetteville. Now, the Raleigh-Durham-Fayetteville advantage for Democrats is significant. It's almost a 200,000 vote difference in uh, vote performance in our television market in the central part of the state. So I believe it's going to be, you know, Cooper only won by about 10,000 votes over McCrory in 2016. The, this election... Cooper should have a, a clear-cut advantage going into the campaign, but it's not a done deal. I think it's going to be a lot closer than people believe that it will be. Uh, you know, I, obviously, I think everyone knows that it's also a race for lieutenant governor and the council of state positions are also up, but that's, that's an area election. The uniqueness of this election is the fact that we have a governor's race, a presidential race, and a U.S. Senate race at the same time. The U.S. Senate race has the prospect of being one of the most expensive in the country. Absolutely. Right now, you've had over $40 million of television bought by the Republican Senate Campaign Committee and the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. Uh, you've had other outside independent expenditure organizations also spend money. At the end of the day, you could have 50 to $60 million spent between Democrats Republicans and independent expenditure groups on behalf of each uh, Democrat and uh, Cal Cunningham and Republican Tom Tillis. 
it could be an absolute barn burner in the state. Other races, I believe, that are truly important, uh, the council of state race is going to live or die on top of the ticket performance, how the Democrats do or Republicans do. Uh, one, the race for the General Assembly, there are 120 seats in the state house, seven, uh, 50 seats in the state Senate. Uh, Republicans have maintained control since 2010 election, and uh, Democrats see an opportunity to pick up seats, possibly even challenge uh, the Republicans for leadership, possibly in the state house. It would take a tsunami for the Democrats to take over leadership in the state Senate uh, for them. To, it would have to be a huge Democratic wave uh, for the Senate to lose control. But You've seen tsunamis before 2008, notwithstanding. So um, I think you're going to see Democrats be competitive. I don't believe that the Democrats will take control at this point in time. I don't see that tsunami. And I think the Republicans will maintain control of the General Assembly. And next year's an extremely important year in the legislative process because of reapportionment. So, uh, and obviously, uh, it, it would appear now with especially the protest of this week that the turnout may be a record-setting turnout, not only because of the number of races, but because of the interest in the, these two very major issues. And of course, a lot of this could change. Uh, you know, for example, there's some folks who think there's a possibility that we may have a vaccine as early as September. Uh, it will take a long time for that vaccine to get distributed, but uh, that would change people's feelings. And of course, a recovery in the economy would change a lot of votes also. So a lot of things, uh, as uh, uh, Brad, you know, we've got this term in broadcasting that we like to use, stay tuned. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think <clears throat> what we've seen this year, uh, all the different markers that are out there, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's the George Floyd movement for uh, racial equality and social justice, I think they are real markers in the future of our country, uh, very similar to, to the periods of time that we saw back in the 60s. Uh, I was talking with my cousin uh, the other day about it's not like our country has not seen similar stresses. And we have survived. We have come out actually stronger. And uh, that's what we've got to look at. Our guest is Brad Crone, president of Campaign Connections. And we'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. And we will sort of recap what we have uh, been talking about so far when we get to that segment. And that's coming up right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was going to do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. Just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. 
If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Brad Crone. A reminder, if you're listening to the station that carries a half-hour version of this program, there are two other segments of uh, the program that are available on uh, online. And you can pick those up by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, and uh, they're segregated out. Or you can listen to the entire broadcast again if you so choose. Our guest this week is Brad Crone, president of Campaign Connections, a frequent guest on our program. And we've talked about uh, COVID-19. We've talked about the protests. We've talked about the possible outcome on elections so far. So uh, let's turn to one other issue, right? or not an issue, but I guess a summarization of what we're talking about. What should we look forward to the rest of, uh, say, June and July as indications of where we may be headed in the fall? What, what uh, do you see happening in the next, say, six weeks that could change things one way or the other? Don, I think the most important thing that we can see over the next six weeks is leadership accountability. And there's been frustration at the local level uh, in our major cities across the state with local leadership. There's been uh, protest and concerns uh, uh, and questions of leadership of our governor and uh, clearly uh, questions of leadership for a president who is, I believe, more interested in dividing us than trying to, to heal us. Uh, so I think it comes back to leadership accountability. I, I, and it starts literally at the top at the presidential level. President Trump likes to compare himself to Abraham Lincoln, but there really isn't any comparison when you look at history. Lincoln, in the midst of a civil war, uh, found the character and integrity to call for reconciliation. He had a famous quote in his second inauguration address, with malice towards none and charity towards all. Meanwhile, we have a president right now in the middle of a national crisis calling for active duty military troops to assume defensive positions in the District of Columbia. He encourages the use of tear gas and flashbangs to clear Lafayette Park so he could have a photo op with the Bible, something I'm surely that he very rarely reads. So we need leadership accountability at the national level, at the state level, and at the local level. We can't let these voices for change go unheard. And so it's a process of follow-up and making sure that our leaders are held to account and are responsible for implementing and executing the change that people demand. Again, I would like to remind the critics that I <laughs> Had uh, from after last week's broadcast, we always allow our guests to express their personal opinions and uh, do not try to censor their comments. Uh, we try to balance off with the number of guests that we have. And so if anything that Brad has said disagrees with you, 
uh, in your view and opinion, that's certainly uh, your prerogative, and it's certainly Brad's prerogative to have his views and opinions. And I think it's through the expression of, of, of views and opinions by everyone that we might find some middle ground uh, of uh, finding solutions to these things that are coming up. But I, I did want to reemphasize that because uh, we try to uh, allow our guests on this program to always have the ability to uh, express their views and opinions. Uh, that's exactly why we call it Carolina Newsmakers. These are newsmakers who are asked to uh, give us their views and opinions. So, um, again, what, what would you say would be something that might change the way this course is going? You, you, you've obviously said it's a time for leadership to set forth, but what kind of actions and the result of those actions might we expect to happen that might change uh, the course of not only the COVID-19, but also the social injustice uh, protest issues? I think we got to look at engagement and engagement is a two way street, Don. It's not a one way street. And, and engagement means having a dialogue with the minority community. It means having a dialogue with groups uh, who may be underrepresented or may not necessarily uh, represent a majority of thoughts and voters. So it, it's, bringing together your African-American community, your LGBTQ community, your Asian and Spanish community, uh, your, your uh, leading women voices, female voices in our society, and really having a dialogue on what can we do to change, what can we do to improve. Uh, we were talking off air before the show started about investing in our educational system. Well, you know, it's imperative for our African-American community and our minority community, our Latinos, Asians, uh, our immigrant community to take advantage of the institutions that are there to provide a hand up for those folks. So yes, we need to invest in public education in this state. We need to support it. We've also got to have the minority communities to support it and engage in it and work to make it better too, because the institutions that we have in place to help economic justice starts at our public school, at the front door of our public schools, at our community colleges, at our universities. So I believe that it's got to start, success has got to start, change starts with engagement. And, and as I said, holding our leaders accountable to the changes that you want. And I believe that starts from the top down and from the bottom up. Uh, at city council and at the county commission level, at the state legislature and at Congress and at the White House. Very quickly, uh, I have been a little surprised because the population of North Carolina now, uh, the uh, population according to the United States Census, is that about uh, 10 or 11 percent of our population is Hispanic. But uh, that community has not become a political force yet. Yet 10 percent is a pretty substantial number. When do you see that changing? Well, I think it's going to be over the course of several more election cycles. The uh, Latino Hispanic vote in the state is far underrepresented. And a lot of that is because of access, because of the language barrier, because of intimidation of the uh, immigration process and legalization of 
uh, immigrants but to become uh, naturalized citizens of the United States. But I think over the next three, four election cycles, next eight to 10 years, we're going to see the increase of Latino voices at the ballot box. Right now, it's about one and a half to two percent of your total votes cast. I think that could clearly double or triple within the next eight to 10 years. And that's going to be a really significant voice too, uh, Don, when when they gain power at the ballot box. It would appear from television views that the Latino community has not been very involved in the recent protest. No, uh, they have been somewhat, uh, but they've not been the dominant uh, face of the protests. Primarily, uh, African-American community has dominated the George Floyd protest, and, and rightly so. Well, uh, so uh, any, any further advice of what we should look for in the next week? <laughs> well, I, I think... You've got, you um, got about 20 seconds. I think calmer heads are going to prevail. I think the the peaceful protests have a voice. We need to listen to them. We need to look at holding our leaders accountable and looking at engagement in all communities to bring about change to improve our local communities, our state, and our nation. Well, just like a good broadcaster, your timing is impeccable. Brad Crone has been our guest. He's the president of Campaign Connections and uh, is also a political strategist, and he's been a frequent guest on our program before. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do that by going online to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and either hear the entire broadcast, or if you're listening to a half-hour version of the program, you can hear the two segments that you missed. The program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he will have another interesting guest for us again next week on this same group of stations. So until next week, same time, along the state of North Carolina, we wish you well. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.